This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I just don't know how you could be anything but beautiful. Over the course of a career that has lasted more than 50 years, Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot has achieved global stardom and exceptional influence. Bob Dylan's a fan. About Lightfoot's songs, Dylan said, I can't think of any I don't like. These songs, which include Beautiful, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, If You Could Read My Mind, and many others, have been treasured by generations of popular musicians and listeners around the world. Many people know about the folk music revival that brought Bob Dylan to New York in the early 1960s. But north of the border, there was an equivalent explosion of talent at that time. And Lightfoot, who got his start singing in boys' choirs, found himself heading to Canada's cultural capital to try his luck. Well, I was down in, uh, in Toronto here looking for work, and I, I got a job as a, as a choral performer in a, in a television series that was on every week. And uh, at the same time, I, I branched out and began working in the, uh, the, the, the folk-oriented uh, places because the, the folk revival had occurred uh, around about 1960, and I... I would have been maybe 20, 20 years old thereabouts, 21. And uh, so I'd be working on the TV show in the daytime and going out and working at the coffee houses at night. I mean, no, you, you had a period where you wrote jingles for commercials, correct? I tried to, 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 to make a living. I, they locked me in a room one time, a manager in a, in a place in, on Madison Avenue and just left me there all afternoon. How'd that go? Well, I, I wrote the commercial, but they just... <laughs> They didn't like it. They didn't like it. They, they didn't play your version of the commercial. But you didn't. You didn't. You weren't in New York for a long time, correct? Well, I would go back and forth to New York all the time to because perform. My, my management company was in New York. I was one of the fortunate ones who was able to uh, acquire a management situation south of the border, so to speak, uh -huh. down in the states, and that was in New York. And uh, it was a great manager. Uh, he recognized my, my songwriting ability immediately, and uh, I got a couple of tunes recorded by Peter, Paul, and Mary, and one of them went up to number five on the, the Which billboard one? chart for, for Loving Me. Wow. That's what you get for loving me. That's what you get for loving me. Everything had is gone. As you can see, that's what you get for loving me. I and so I was introduced to the industry in the States really as a songwriter before they even knew that I sang. You know, it was, it sort of happened on its own. Do you, think you would have been, do you think you would have been happy to just stay in that place and just produce records and, and and write music and was performing the goal all along? Did you want? Were you itching to do that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to. Uh, even as a child, I, you know, I didn't mind singing in my grandmother's house uh, on, on the Sunday get-togethers. You know, like they would single me out and I would solo. Uh, I enjoyed the feel of uh, the, the communication that I and I could feel it then. 
And uh, th- that's what I feel now. I feel, I feel a communication when I, I have a wonderful band and we have a great repertoire and we, we just lay the stuff right out there for them. Just pure joy. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy, enjoy doing that. Yeah, but when you were particularly if it pays the bills, well, that's a that's a desirable <laughs> silver lining there. Yeah, benefit, yeah. yeah. All uh, that hard work. Well, but when you were writing, when you turn that corner and singing takes over, you know, I, I was doing like like, like small time stuff, and all of a sudden I was uh, asked to come to New York and, and open for a Paul Butterfield concert. Mm-hmm. 1966, thereabouts, mm-hmm. I suppose. 67. Were you on the radio then recording? No, we didn't actually get on the radio until about 1971. And what was the first song that, I mean, I, I have a list here, but what was the first, if, if you could read if, my mind? If you could read my mind. You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost You can't see the record was out. It was my first album on Warner Brothers. And uh, it, it was out for eight months, and there was no single. And all of a sudden, uh, one of the promotion guys said to his girlfriend, will you listen to this and come back and give me an opinion on it? And Monday morning, uh, his girlfriend, she likes if he could read my mind. Where the heartaches come, the hero would be me. The heroes often fail. You won't read that book again because the ending just too hard to If you could read my mind, hits the charts, so to speak, and becomes a big hit for you, what changes for you? Like, did you have to sit there and say, oh, I, people are telling you to do things differently and now you're going to be a success and they want you to... We get so busy, we got to hire an aircraft. Literally. That's what happened. Literally. We had to hire an aircraft. Everyone wants to book you the way to fly. We'd get in the same place, two different places in one day. So, when you reach that point of the, and the, that turning point, is the is the next imperative? You got to start coming up with more songs and writing more yeah. songs. Oh, yeah. yeah. They want you to record. Yeah, we made three more albums and nothing happened. But we, but I, I kept doing one a year, and and something had to give eventually, and then. Uh, one summer, I wrote that song "Sundown," and I knew that, that it was it was going to happen. That it was it was the, the right thing, and it did. It went, it went up to number one. That was our second one. Then it was almost seven, two albums later that we had the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and uh, that happened all by itself too. That that became a responsibility. Right. It it did a, a very large responsibility. The song anyway. became a responsibility. Yeah, the record, well, well, the but, Fitzgerald. Well, but but tell me in your own words. Many people go on about that, about the tragedy and the history, and it's a very, you know, important song to people. You know, in Canadian history, people talk about it very reverentially. Why was it important to you? Uh, because it was only one verse uh, uh, contained any conjecture of any kind and the rest of it was taken from directly from newspaper articles and the, the aftermath which only lasted for about three days if I had not wrote that song no, everybody would have forgotten about it a week after it happened uh, I said people are, are, are all around the Great Lakes area are going to wonder if the song is appropriate. And, and some did wonder about it, mm-hmm. whether it was appropriate for me to have uh, written a song of that kind. But uh, 
I had gone uh, uh, pretty much with the, the newspaper articles that I scraped up. We had no CPs in those days, and uh, you, you went back to you went to the publisher and got the back copies of the newspapers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it's accurate. It's 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 accurate in the way the story un, unfolds. I remember the night I wrote it. I was working in, in a deserted house. And there was there was a heck of a windstorm going on right in in Toronto that night, and I, I remember myself wondering, gee, I wonder what it's like up on the on the Great Lakes right now because I sailed up there myself. I had a couple of two different sailboats up there, and wondered always, I wonder what the Great Lakes are like tonight because you're always hearing about what things happening up in the Great Lakes. And at 11 o'clock in the evening, there was a report of a ship sinking uh, three hours earlier in Lake Superior. And they were out looking for the, the people. And they never found any of them. And uh, 29 people gone. And I, I had a melody and I had some chords that uh, I was knocking around in this deserted house with the wind howling outside my... Really, it, it was kind of, kind of a classic setting to mm. to write a song like that. So I began writing the song and finished writing it like two or three weeks later. We were right in the middle of a recording, a series of recording sessions at the time, so we put it in. And it didn't work the first day. We, we put it in the second day, and uh, did you ever hear of Stomp and Tom Connors? No. Oh, <laughs> I will now. I'm going to run out and get all of Stomp and Tom he Connors. A, he was recording. He was one of our very famous Canadian folk artists. Stomp and Tom Connors uh, po- po- poked his head and said, "That sounds like a hit." He just heard the uh, uh, the melody going, like he hadn't heard the lyrics or anything. So the the appeal of the song is definitely in the melody and the chord changes. And then the, the story of the actual event itself, I got as accurately as I could by pursuing old news articles. The wind and the wires made a tattletale sound And the wave broke over the railing And every man knew as the captain did too T'was the witch of November come stealing The dawn came late and the breakfast had to wait When the gales of November came slashing When afternoon came it was freezing rain In the face of a hurricane west wind What was recording and performing music like back then? Did it seem simpler to you? Is it, is it, uh, what was it like for you to be you and do what you do in the early days as compared to later on and to now, for that matter? The, the first time I, I started doing it, I felt uh, un, like, not confident in what I was doing, what, what I was hearing. I didn't, uh, I didn't like what I was hearing. Of your own stuff, yeah, I, I didn't like the the sound the, the sound of my voice bothered me, and and you know I I started working on that stuff, and I and I, I've been working on it ever since uh, on my vocal, and, I, and I've, I've worked on my my intonation on my instruments. Someone told me that that when you land, because you perform in so many different areas, you really dwell on tuning your instruments a lot. Correct. Yeah, sometimes I chase it around too, but I, but but I've learned uh, through the years that there is a method that 
can get me into into Scarborough Fair country, you know, like the like the sound that Simon and Garfunkel used to get on their acoustic uh, uh, orchestral arrangements that they put together right. for their songs, right. and and uh, it actually only came came real for me maybe six or seven years ago after I was recovering from a, a mini stroke that I had, and I had to practice a lot more all of a sudden. Right. So it, it really got me zeroing in on it, and it it, it all comes down to the, the fifths and the octaves, and I'll just leave it at that. I'm just a handmaiden here. For all you guitar people out there, that's Gordon Lightfoot's gift to you and his present to you. It's the fifths <laughs> and the octaves. And I don't have one damn the idea what he's... The, the fifths and the octaves. I don't know what yeah. the hell he's talking about, but there it is. There's his message to you today. Yeah, open. <clears throat> McCartney told me when I spoke to him once, Paul told me that uh, he said in the beginning they would go into a recording studio, The Beatles, and he said, uh, you know, it was really, these weren't his words, but the message was kind of like, time is money. He said, these guys were like, you know, we want two songs in the morning, and then you go have a lunch break, and you go down to the pub, and you have a cigarette, and you have a fish and chips, or whatever, you come back, they want two songs in the afternoon. <laughs> they, they, they really moved along in a clip when they were doing the first albums uh, for yeah. Parlophone or whoever it was, or EMI. Yeah. And then when they became, you know, the success, they obviously became, then they would take a year, you know, all musicians are the same, then they would take a year to do their next album. You know, they would do Sgt. Peppers or whatever and really, really uh, luxuriate. And, and they have getting more every, time. Yeah. They, they gave them more time because it was worth, uh, it was worth uh, that investment for them. Was the same true with you? Do you find that the more successful you became, the more time you wanted to make music? Perhaps later on, but I, I, I pretty much stuck to the uh, to the schedule as much as I could. We, uh -huh. we made like eight or nine albums in ten years there, so uh, you didn't feel rushed by them. Uh, no, we we were getting more time, right. but I, but I was also also improving because I what, what I didn't like hearing, I was I was changing all the time, right. and I was always on, on a, an improvement venture. Like a guy building himself up and for to play on an important sports team, you know. They right. got it. It's just not just the game; it's the preparation. Say you haven't played for for a month, and all of a sudden you got to get back up on stage. You should be able to crank it out just like it was just the you did a show last night. Right. But you liked rehearsing. Yeah. Well, you, you well, believed yeah. in rehearsing. Yeah, or you're learning new material, or you're going back into the uh, the old catalog, which, which we do because I have a, a rotational situation going on. My biggest problem uh, my whole life has been too many tunes, too many women. For, for my listeners right now, Gordon Lightfoot is turning sheepishly toward his wife <laughs> with a sheepish grin on his face, and she just patted his shoulder to say, it's okay, Gordon. Well, I can't step on your toes, you know. Yeah, you can't do that. But but I remember reading, I remember listening to an article, <laughs> I remember reading an article that the Rolling Stones did uh, years ago, and, and I was t taken by how, you know, in terms of musicianship, Jagger and Keith Richard were very, very married to rehearsal. And for you to say that, that has great meaning to me, for you, someone who's as great an artist as you are, that you, the preparation and the preparation beforehand... So that when you when the audience is there, boom, you strum that guitar and you're you're ready. You're ready. Yeah, and we, we and we have the uh, the orchestra itself. I have, have four really talented guys and very loyal people. I, told, I read about that. Your band is very loyal yeah. to you. Well, I mean, it's there's no reason why they, they should <laughs> should not be. I, you know, we, we're all we're all on the same path. I mean, we we. We just want to do a great job, and, and 
you, you got to like make almost make a science out of it. I don't know. My guys are all professionals. I mean, they're they're, they're serious musicians. Yeah, 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 and they 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 do other things. I I just got to let them know what what's coming up. You know. What were you listening and, to back then in the '60s when you were coming up? Who who did you listen to? Well, I, I was listening to country music, you know, Hank Snow, and then in folk it was Pete Seeger, and it was Bob Gibson, and it was Bob Dylan, and and uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and you know, Peter Paul and Mary, and Ian and Sylvia. They were a duet, and they were it was a beautiful act that they had. So eventually, you met these people. Well, I, I met. But you became my, one of them. My management company, because they were the first ever to do one of, do any of my songs. It was Ian and Sylvia. Right. Which one? For loving me and early morning rain. I found an opening with the uh, the folk revival, you know. So I was lucky to be a part of that to ride that one through and survive. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's nothing much out there these days. Uh, you know they're 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 busking. We we've got a, a, a whole bunch of people here in Toronto who who are hovering around all the time. The, the folk oriented artists that, who are songwriters and you know trying to get somewhere. And uh, some some of them uh, are succeeding and some are not. I get to hear a lot of the stuff because it comes across my desk and I I get to hear it. And uh, you wish, you know, that something grand could happen for these people, but you don't know what to do. All you can do is respond. Right. Encourage. Yeah. Where do you think people learn to hone their craft as a musician? In, in, in clubs and in performing live? Well, I was, as well as, I was working in bars too, you know, like bars and lounges, as well as the coffee houses. And uh, so I, I had a, the, the kind of a, a repertoire that was acceptable to play in bars, so I, I, I got a following in a couple of these bars. Mm -hmm. Then, then I, I sort of moved uptown into the uh, uh, the village area, you know, Yorkville, which was just coming into bloom here mm -hmm. in, in town, and get into places like uh, like the Purple Onion, and then the Riverboat, which was really the the plum of the whole lot was the Riverboat because. Uh, uh, Bernie Feeder brought every person into that place you could possibly imagine. Played there, right from J James Taylor to Joni Mitchell to to uh, Neil Young, right on down the line. Is he, is he is he a friend of yours? Or? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, your songs and your singing of your songs, your performing of your songs, is so vulnerable and so emotional. What was the most difficult song for you to write, or among the most difficult songs for you to write? I tell you that a lot of the times you don't know you're doing it. You 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 you're drawing the material from your your subconscious. You don't you don't actually know what you're doing. You you know you're drawing it from somewhere, and then later down the line, uh, three or four weeks later, you you can assign it back to uh, the the actual event that brought it on. I mean that, that's. Like if if he could read my mind, is is about actually the, the the crumbling of a relationship. Was that painful for you to write? No, because I didn't know what I was doing when I wrote it. It just, it just sat, it, I didn't. You're telling me that all these beautiful folk act. songs that people weep when they listen to, you're just like tossing it off. Like I don't really know what this is. 
Let's take a song, for example. Let me, let me pick one song. Now, one of my favorite songs of yours, I mean, a song that I just kills me, is Beautiful. Describe to me recording the song Beautiful. I mean, do you go out with your friends and you get shit-faced drunk and you come in with a hangover and you just lay this thing down and you play poker all night? Or do you enter a state? First, I get a chord progression. <laughs> then I get a melody. <laughs> it's fifths and octaves, people. Then it's fifths and octaves. Then I get the lyric. You got the melody, you got the chords, but you don't know. So you, you draw... You find an idea that, that that fits the fits the melody. That's Gordon Lightfoot, the songwriter. Gordon Lightfoot, the singer, the performer. Do you enter a state? Do you take yourself to a place when you perform your recorded music, or you don't? Well, I I can uh, I, I can use my imagination. Right. <laughs> I actually saw it as as a sim sincere. Love tune to a, to a guy for his wife or his uh, his girlfriend. It it reminds me when uh, of when I was I, I learned how to sing with emotion when I was about twelve. When I was doing handling material from Handel's Messiah, it you know, overtook the voice, you. The voice of him who cries in the wilderness and all that sort of thing. And uh, I I learned what what emotion meant when when I sang. Handle. Handel's Messiah <laughs> at age 12. I sang in competition. Uh, so, so I could apply, it was easy for me to apply the, to summon up that emotional uh, something or whatever it is when it came time to put that song down. But I, I, I didn't have it to the point at the beginning that I, I wanted to have it, and that's why I've been working on it all my life, is, is getting... Is, controlling that emotional approach to it and making it work for me. You don't want to overdo it. You know, you don't right. want to get and you don't. sappy. You don't well, want to but get saying, That's what's beautiful about your music yeah. is you go right up to a point, but you don't do a lot of hand-holding. You let the audience do the crying for you. You know what I mean? You're, you're, well, you're very... we, we balance it off with a lot of toe-tappers. We've got, <laughs> we got lots of toe-tappers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. For a prime example of the delivery Gordon Lightfoot does so well, you don't have to look beyond this song, Sundown. I can see her lying back in her satin dress In a room where you do what you don't confess Sundown, you better take care If I find you been creeping round my backstairs Coming up. Lightfoot talks about some of his musical inspirations and explains why he and Bob Dylan didn't get along right away. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with a very different kind of songwriter, Tom York, from the British rock band Radiohead. He tells me how his producer gave him the confidence to explore wild new electronic sounds. I mean, I was like... um a kid being given a hammer, I was just hammering away on stuff. I didn't really know what I was doing. But he was kind of fascinated by that, you know, and he'd come and literally tidy up the mess right, <laughs> I'd done right. on the computer. Right. Take a listen at heresthething.org. I'm telling you that you're beautiful. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Gordon Lightfoot has straddled the worlds of pop and folk music for decades, but his confessional songwriting 
appealed to country music performers like Johnny Cash, Hank Williams Jr., and Glenn Campbell as well. They all covered his songs. And there's good reason. That's what Lightfoot was listening to when he started thinking about what kind of musician he wanted to be. It was probably a country music. I made the crossover into adult contemporary music, you know, uh, fairly soon. Uh, and, and, and there was a lot of good writing going on in the folk revival, too, and I, got, uh, I, I was influenced by that. So you didn't come into the music business and say, I want to be Sinatra, I want to be Elvis, I want to be Dylan. Well, I think you we, wanted to find I, your own voice. Yeah, I, 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 didn't, I, I certainly did not uh, take lightly the fact that I, I was really influenced by Bob Dylan because of the, not only the quality of the work, but the, the output that they, they achieved. Mm-hmm. He was prolific. Yeah, I, I, that, that was the, the amazing part about it. And it said, well, if it can be that easy for him, it must surely be, be easier for me. I mean, if he can do this much work, surely I can, can do this much work. Mm-hmm. While appreciating the music that he was producing at the time. When did you first meet him? Uh, 1965. Mm-hmm. What in, was that like in, for you? In Woodstock. Well, it, it was a uh, was an interesting time. I, I we actually didn't didn't get along when we when we first met. <laughs> he, 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 criti- he criticized my 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 rules at, at uh, playing Manhattan uh, on his pool table in, in Woodstock, and I I got a little uh, he got a little sarcastic about it, and, I, and we were all he was very sarcastic. Mm-hmm. And I, I started seeing this coming on to me, and I, I, I left. I left their, their house. Wow. <laughs> and went back down the, the hill to Albert's house. Albert? Uh, Albert Grossman. Uh, he, he was the manager. Right. I, I had become sure. part of that stable. That family, that stable, yeah. So needless to say, since I knew him for so many years ap- after that, because we're all working out of the same place, it, it, I became... The, Sort of party party central for them when they when they came to Toronto, right. which was often and with the band and everybody and we had a great time and I you know uh, it, it was good to have known have known Bob. Um, is it safe to say because I've read this in different articles and so forth when I was reading up about you um, that when you say you got together and had a good time was there a period of your life where you had too much of a good time? Well, I mean, there was lots of drinking went on. Yeah, there was a little bit of everything went sure. on. It just depended upon how, uh, how severely you were affected by it and what kind of a constitution that you possessed. Right. I, I did. I, I drank heavily right up until 1982, and then all of a sudden I stopped. Why? I stopped Why? it for 23 years. Why? Because it was, going to, it was going to ruin my, my career. And I was making un- unrational, irrational decisions. And one night I tried to climb from, from one balcony to the next in an apartment building on the 10th floor. Yeah, I get it. Sure, and sure, there was sure. a party going on. Oh, <laughs> well, you wanted to go from one party? Yeah. I love that. What well, was a better party in that other wing over there? Yeah, I tried so to climb. It was all the same. There was two balconies. I want to meet those folks. There was room for me to, to jump from the one balcony to the next. Did you make it? Yes. I, well, I've said it. I was here talking you to you. Well, you might have fallen and broken your leg or something. Who knows? I, I was on the 10th floor. I, I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. 
things like that, you know. But no, there and were... then th- other things that I did, there were bad judgments, you know, in, 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 you know, with people, and I felt that I was offending people sometimes. And I, I did. So the last thing I wanted to do was offend anyone, you know. And uh, that's what I felt when I wrote the Fitzgerald. I, I said, I hope I'm not going to offend any of the relatives of, of these men. You know, so was it ever this, communicated to you that you had? Did anybody suggest that? No, no, no. Yeah. It, it, it never they was. They appreciated it's, what it's you did. Been honored. We we, yeah. we just went to the 40th anniversary ourselves just this last November. We where we was it held? In Lake Superior, mm-hmm. up in 15 miles, 30 miles uh, northwest of Sault Ste. Marie at, at Whitefish Point. Wow. Um, you know, you have had some very impactful health issues. You had a stroke, and then you had Bell's palsy, and you couldn't have... What's it like to lose feeling in your fingers and you're a guitar player? Well, ask me what it was like when I had the aortal aneurysm. Okay. What was it like when you had the aortal aneurysm? (laughs) Well, it put me out out of business for two years. Did it really? Yeah, it put me out of business for two years. What year was that? 2002. What were the symptoms of that? You, you pass out and you don't wake up. Oh, I mean, literally, for, the aneurysm burst. For six weeks, yeah. What were you feeling in the weeks prior? I, I would have uh, bouts of uh, uh, stomach ache, and I'd have to lay out on my belly on the bed right, for a while. Yeah, then it would subside, and that went on over a period of several years. And it started about 10 years before the actual event occurred. So it, it, there is a, a warning. There is. There's, there are warning signals. It's a pain. You get a pretty bad stomach ache. And, uh, and you had Bell's palsy as well? Yeah, that was years ago. That was, that was 1960. You were young. Huh? Yeah. 72, I think? Thereabouts, yeah. yeah. I had to stop performing for three months, and then I got enough of a... Of, where it stopped puffing enough that I was able to go back to work again. Really? So I just... Uh, I just uh, Boulder, boulder through, so to so to speak. And then you had a stroke. And gradually when? came back. That that was a mini stroke that affected my my right hand, which was very disturbing. That was in two two thousand and six. That was when I really started practicing, and that's when I really improved, learned how to really get my instruments in tune. At the same time, so I derived a benefit from from that. Mm-hmm. How do American radio interview hosts differ from Canadian radio interview hosts? Uh, no difference that I can see. No difference to you. Thank They're you. That's very kind of you. Folks are folks. I, I, south of the border. I always we're, appreciate a kind we're, word. we're all Thank cousins. You. We're all we're, cousins. We're all cousins here in North America. That's the way You're I'm not right. political That's now. That's probably why I never moved down there. I've, 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 I've follow. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a political fan. I'm a fan. Of, uh, of of watching the p- political process. You're an observer. Well, you you had the situation with the song in Detroit, Black Day in July. Yeah, from the Detroit riots. That's right. And you wrote a song about that, and it caused you a little bit of a grief. And the record company released a single. Did you? And did you feel that that was something that you resented, or like how did you feel when you got pulled well, into I, that? Well, I, I kind of shouldn't have done that. It was almost like Why? The, like the wreck. Well, well, like like it was. Uh, it, uh, well, I should have. I was working in the city a lot in the in the, the coffeehouse circuit there. There was something about it. I kept saying maybe I shouldn't have written a song like this. You know, it was written as a folk song for an album. Right. Uh, the wreck of the Ebony Fitzgerald was written as a folk song for an album, and uh, so political purposes assigned by other people. You didn't have a political purpose when you wrote the song. No. Right. Interesting. Just a story. Right. And the soul of Motor City 
is bared across the land As the book of law and order is taken in the hands Of the sons of the fathers who were carried to this land Black Black I mean, when the record company took the song off the air, so it didn't piss you off. It, the record companies never pissed you off. No, never. No, they were, when they, they were told great. you what songs to put on the album, what songs not to put on the album, it never bothered you. Well, we sort of we always worked that out together. You did. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, with, with exceptions, this is very early in the career too. Before I had, had the, the, the level of authority that I that I, I needed to establish, I, I was in house produced, and I, and I, uh, I, I, I used to uh, be able to d discuss, discuss and discuss things with, with them there, and uh, very fortunately, fortunately to be able to do that. What song that when you sing it, you could sit there and go, man, I really, really nailed that. That's a good song. Oh, okay. Sure, there's a lot of them, but what's one that just comes e out e of you? East of Midnight. East of Midnight. East of Midnight. That's, that's my, one of my, my very best ones. Put me somewhere east of midnight, west of the turnpike, anywhere I I don't do that. I used to do it. With the, <laughs> no, no, do you know why I don't do it, though? The, you because, are such a funny cat. I, I, East of Midnight's I, my best I, song. I Man, I you got to hear that. I don't I do don't, that anymore I did, either. I did it for years. This is my last four or five albums are probably the, two, the five best albums I, I made. But unfortunately, my, my momentum had run out with the, uh, the record company at that point. Mm -hmm. But I still kept producing but, because but, but, I was, but isn't that interesting? You just said my last four or five albums the, are the best the, albums I've ever. Do I you made. really believe that? Sure, you do. Yeah, you recorded yes. those albums between what period of time? Nineteen uh, nineteen eighty two and and two thousand six. So you recorded an album in two thousand six, right before you got sick. Nineteen eighty five. 1985. 2006. During 19 years, I made five of the best albums. I finished an album while I was while, while I was down with the aneurysm. I finished an album there. It took my mind off my condition entirely. So it was very fortuitous that I had uh, a whole bunch of stuff sitting in the uh, in the can at the time, as they used to say. And the best one of the whole lot is is Easter Midnight. Do you write songs now? Uh, I, I could. I, I, I always have four, four or five tunes on the, on the back burner. Your wife is practically groaning behind you, <laughs> nodding her head like, yes, of course. There, there's always tunes on the back burner. Uh, it's beautiful what do you, songs. What do you, what, when you write songs now, what do you write about? I, I just write, write about... If you say about, jumping from one about, balcony to the other, whimsy. I'm going to kill you. I, I, I just write, write about whimsy. I, I try to sound, sound intelligent. Right. You know? What's on your mind now? Well, I was thinking about the but the one I, 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 that has the turtle in it. I like that. I think she likes the fact that I introduce a turtle into this song. <laughs> it's more than Is that. Is that the part that you like about it, darling? 
You know, you know what loves, I'm seeing here? It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. Your wife is this gorgeous young woman, and I realize the glue of this marriage is you write songs about turtles for your wife. That's amazing. No, no, it's, it's, it, that's I don't just have one, that advantage. That, that's just one, one scene. I've got to bullshit a... my wife every day and convince her into staying with me. <laughs> and you just sit there and go, I wrote this song for you, baby. And it contains I wrote a, a song about a turtle. I know, I know. It, it's, it's like, uh, come if you will, while the earth is still fertile. Lady, I see society through the eyes of a turtle. Turtles are soft and they, they've got feelings too. Maybe they think too quickly for me or for you. And it really doesn't matter. We got to end there. So maybe, <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe not. Just to show you the kind of a stuff it is. Okay. Into the microphone, Come, please. if you will, back to the stable. Lady, I see Marilyn Monroe, and there stands Clark Gable. He'll milk the cow. She'll stop the show. There's many a good hand felt the chilly wind blow, and it doesn't really matter. Don't ask her, you know, why I write that stuff. Yeah. Ask him about for loving me. That's a Oh, that's yeah, well, well see, I, I, I sang it for 25 years, but it's really a, a vicious, it's, very, it's just a very vicious uh, song, an uh, unrequited love song. And, and it, was, it was written during the time when I was, I was, was still married, and I, I wondered, my goodness, what, what does my... Uh, it was like almost like Will Chamberlain. I'll, I've, I've had a hundred more like you, I'll have a thousand for I'm through, was one of the lines in it. And I was married to someone. And I, you know, I, I hated singing the song, and finally I stopped singing it, the same way as I stopped drinking in 1982. But even that only lasted for 23 years. Then you sang it again. No, you don't sing the song. You won't no, sing I, it. No, I don't. A lot of people do, but other people record it. And even you won't El sing even it. Elvis, Elvis Presley said, for loving me. That's what you get for loving me. I gotta say, I look at these album covers. You're you're one of the best looking guys I've ever seen in my life. I mean. Was that tough for you? Was that a tough part of your career? It, well, I, I you think it helped you? Probably. I'm, I, I'm sure. I, I'm sure it did. But I'm sure. Sure, it yeah. must have. What's next? When are you going on the road again? Uh, Friday morning. <laughs> I feel a little blue because I can sew. There's still a lot of things that I should know. Anyone can guess I don't know how to press My Saturday clothes I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios. I feel a little sad to watch them leave But I'll be cool because I don't Happy times are gone